It's the first Sunday night of the month, and generally that's the night that has been set aside to answer Bible questions. And I know many of you have expressed an interest in saying you like the lessons that answer Bible questions, and that's what we're going to attempt to do tonight. Each time I try to find a passage in the Bible which draws attention to the idea of the asking of questions. And sometimes we are sort of like Festus. You know, Festus had just become the governor of the area of Palestine where Paul and Jerusalem all the way to Caesarea was located. And... uh, When he became the governor, there was a lot of things that were left over from Felix's administration that had not been dealt with. One of those matters was the Apostle Paul. He had been kept in prison. And when Festus went to Jerusalem, they wanted Paul to be executed. Festus said that's not the custom of the Romans to execute a man before he has had an opportunity to be heard. Paul then had to appeal to Caesar. But Festus was in a quandary. Festus didn't know what to do. He didn't know the background of the issue. He didn't know what all was going on. And so Agrippa arrives, and this is the conversation between Festus and Agrippa. He said there were some questions about him, about their own religion, and about the certain Jesus who died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. You say, well, I know what that is. That's the resurrection of the dead, and that's Jesus coming back. But Festus goes on to say, and because I was uncertain of such questions, I didn't know what to make of that. I didn't know how to deal with that. I asked whether he was going to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. And he goes on to say, Agrippa, I'm glad you're here. And, you know, sometimes we're like him. We want to seek the advice of those who are a little more familiar with a a question or an issue. And so that's what we're going to try to do tonight. As I mentioned each time, there are three types of questions. And I mention this not just because that's what we're going to deal with, but some of you are probably thinking, I've got a question I want him to deal with. And if you will, write it on the back of one of the note cards and hand it to me. We'll try to deal with it as soon as possible. But there are some that are textual. We have two questions tonight about the text of the Bible then some of them are topical. They may relate to a biblical topic like baptism or repentance or worship. And then there's some that are practical. How do we implement something the Bible teaches? Well, let's begin tonight with my first question that has been submitted. Please explain 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. Now, I'm going to put the passage on the screen for you so that you can read it, but you do need, in this case, to open your Bibles to the context. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. 
I'd like to begin by pointing out that some of the terms that are used here, that when you read this passage, it's very easy to draw a conclusion that is not in the passage. And you say, what are you talking about? Let me give you another good illustration. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 20 says, Whether two or three are gathered together, there I am in the midst of them. I've heard brethren use that in the past to say that if me and my family, there's two or three of us, we want to go to the lake, we want to skip going to services, and we want to have our own services somewhere, that where two or three are gathered together, the Lord's in the midst of them. And do you know that's not what that passage is talking about at all? In fact, that passage is talking about discipline from verses 15 through 17. When you read this passage, it immediately comes to your mind, what's he talking about? Well, let's go back to the context. Look back with me at verse 7 in this passage. And while you're looking back to verse 7, I want to um, sort of lay the groundwork of the whole book. The theme of the book of 1 Peter is how to live a holy life in a hostile world where people are constantly trying to threaten you and persecute you for your faith. In fact, in this very context, he said in verse 16, if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not, uh, you know, to glorify God in that name, not to be ashamed. Well, the context in verse 7 says... But the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. And so the question comes up, did they expect the end of the world to occur very soon? Were the listeners of Peter and the Peter himself saying, the world's about to end? The answer is no. When you go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes, Now, brethren, concerning our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, we ask you not to be shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us as though the day of Christ had come. He's trying to reassure these people who were told to be watchful to not think it was something immediate. Now, when you start looking at this context, what he has reference to is the destruction of Jerusalem. And you can say, really, is that what he's talking about? I want you to go with me to Matthew 24. Just go ahead and keep your finger here and flip over to Matthew 24. And I just want to pull out a couple of verses out of this context to will draw attention to the same terminology that he's used here. In verse 6 of Matthew 24, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. Verse 13, But he who endures to the end shall be a saved. You might say, well, see there, there's the end. He's talking about the end of the world. No, he's not. Because he's contemplating things after the end of the world. We do know that in this context here, in verse 12, that there was a fiery trial among them. He said, beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing had happened to you. The context is they are suffering 
and there's an event that is about ready to take place, and that event is the destruction of Jerusalem. Well, let's, let's take the text then, and let's start looking at what it actually says. For the time has come for judgment. What judgment is it, is it of these speaks here? Is it the judgment at the end of time, or is it judgment on the city of Jerusalem? Well, to make that point plain, listen to Matthew 23, verses 37 through 39. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Notice that phrase there. See your house. What house is he talking about? The temple. How do I know that? Matthew 24, verses 1 and following. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. The parallel passage from Luke 21 is even much more explicit Then as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he said, these things which you see, the days come which one stone will not be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. And so they asked him, saying, Teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Notice now, about to take place. He said, Take heed that you know not be deceived, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And the time has drawn near. Think about 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is at hand. He says, now the time draws near. Therefore, do not go after them. But when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified. For these things must come to pass. But the end will not come immediately. So you understand the time has come for judgment. He says, and if judgment begins at the house of God. What does it mean when it says the house of God? In 1 Timothy 3 verse 15, he says, you ought to know how to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. Where is this judgment going to begin? He says, it's going to begin with the church. Someone says, You mean God is going to look and judge His people who may be doing wrong first? Absolutely. In Ezekiel chapter 9, there's a picture there where there's a a, a punishment to take place. And there's one going through marking the people in the city who sigh and grieve over the abominations done within the city. And so God is going to send through the city these angels of destruction. And he says, go through him, go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare nor have any pity. Utterly slay old men and young men, maidens, little children, women. And do not begin near anyone on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the temple. You see, there's a picture given here that God is going to judge those who are His. Now, in this context, 
He's referring to the destruction of the temple by Nebuchadnezzar that took place in 586 B.C. Ah, you say... I start seeing a parallel now between the one that was going to take place in A.D. 70. But the question is raised in this passage, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? We use the phrase, obey the gospel, to refer to those who are Christians. So those who do not obey the gospel refers to those who are not Christians. In 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 8 he said he would take fire on them who do not know God and do not obey the gospel. That means eternally there will be people that God will judge who have not obeyed the gospel. But in this context, if he's talking about the nine Christians, judgment's going to begin at the house of God. He says the righteous are scarcely saved. What shall happen to those who do not obey the gospel? And so, I've got to understand this now. The warning that Jesus provides in Matthew 24 and Luke 21 was to tell Christians the destruction is coming. You need to get out of town when you see these certain signs taking place. And it was only by, we would say, the skin of their teeth that the Christians escaped. The non-Christians didn't know about it. They didn't know the signs, and therefore they died. Listen to Matthew 24, verses 15 through 22. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, and then he says, whoever reads, let him understand. You see the events prophesied here? He says, then let those who are in Judea Flee to the mountains. He said, let him who's on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. Now, how do I know this is not referring to the final judgment? Because on the day in which our Lord returns, according to 1 Corinthians 15, we're all going to be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and following. I know that's going to take place. So there'd be no benefit of fleeing to the mountains. He's saying a guy who's on the housetop, you don't even go down and get your stuff. Because when you see Jerusalem encompassed by armies, when you see all this, you need to know that its desolation is near. And he said, verse 19, Woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be on in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world to this time, no nor shall ever be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. For the elect's sake. So when you're reading 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, and he's talking about the righteous being scarcely saved, He's talking about they barely make it out of Jerusalem with their lives. Not that you barely are saved in eternal judgment. Verse 18 is a quote from Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 31. If the righteous will be recompensed on earth, how much more the ungodly and the sinner. 
His emphasis is, if God will judge the righteous, He's most certainly going to judge the unrighteous. The bottom line is, is that this is a message to those who are suffering for their faith to follow in the example of Jesus. What are you going to do when it gets really tough and there's challenges being placed before you? In 1 Peter 2.23, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but committed himself to him who judges righteously. That's what Christians do. You let God take care of the matter and you be faithful and you do what is right. I hope that answered 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. Now one that came from a lesson I delivered a couple of weeks ago. Please explain Acts 9-7 and Acts 22-9. Did they hear or not? Now I'm going to put the two passages on the screen and you can see them. In Acts 9, verse 7... And when the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Acts 22, verse 9, And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke with me, or spoke to me. And what the question is, in Acts 9 it says they heard the voice, In Acts 22, it says they did not hear the voice. And so question comes up, is this a contradiction in the Bible? The atheist would say so. Those who deny the Bible would say, see, you've got two different answers. But I think that's going to be easily answered by observing what we do today. You can hear the sound of someone speaking, but not understand the content of that sound. You know there's somebody telling you something. For instance, someone may speak in a low volume. Sometimes when people get up here to read, to make announcements, or to lead a song, or preach a sermon, they're standing back here and some of you are not hearing a word that's being said. Sometimes there's competing noises. Uh, And someone says... Will you repeat what you were saying? I didn't hear you. Well, why would you tell them to repeat unless you heard them? The answer is you heard them, but you didn't understand them. And that's the explanation between these two passages here. In chapter 22 and verse 9, the words of the voice of the one who spoke with me. They didn't understand the words. They heard the voice. They heard a noise. But they didn't understand what the noise was. And so it indicated they did not understand the words that God was speaking to Paul. That's the simple answer to that question. Number three. Believe me, I don't make these questions up. Is there any Bible significance to the eclipse? Uh, I probably should have included this one in the last lesson so it would have been pre-eclipse instead of post-eclipse. But when events happen in the sky, men often become superstitious. I will tell you that I walked outside during the eclipse and it was a rather weird feeling to be in the middle of the day and it become like night. I will tell you there were a lot of interesting things that took place. The birds quit flying. 
There were a lot of things, and because of that, eclipses have been viewed as being a dark or an evil omen throughout history. Whenever an eclipse would take place, people would think God's judgment is about near or the God's judgment are about near. Some people wonder if this is a sign from God. Was God trying to deliver a message in it? I'm assuming that was the background of the question that was asked. I want you to listen to Jeremiah 10, verse 2. been reading a lot from Jeremiah recently, preparing again for the class on Ezra and Nehemiah. And when you look at what was going on during Jeremiah's prophecy, there's a lot of spiritual superstition among his people. In fact, the, the worldliness of the worldly people have begun to infect God's people. And thus says the Lord, do not learn the way of the Gentiles. Do not be dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the Gentiles are dismayed by them. Oh, an eclipse happens. What's going to happen? Is it going to be something evil, something uh, terrible that's going to take place? Well, the Gentiles thought so. What happens when God's people start thinking that way? 2 Kings 23, verse 5. For he removed the idolatrous priest whom the king of Judah ordained to burn incense on the high places in the cities of Judah and in, burn, and in the places all around Jerusalem. And those who burn incense to Baal, to the sun, to the moon, and to the constellations, and to all the host of heaven. Do you know what they would have done during the days of some of these kings of Judah? When an eclipse would have taken place, they would have said, Oh no, God's evil actions toward us is coming. So what we've got to do, we've got to burn incense to these gods of the heavens. Now there's been some people say, Well, doesn't the Bible talk a lot about eclipses? Are there not some of them described in the Bible? I want to give you three and point out to you that these are not, I repeat, are not eclipses in the Bible. The book of Exodus, chapter 10, verses 21 through 23. You'll remember when God brought the plagues on the Egyptians. And we read in verse 21, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may even be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt. Three days they did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. Well, how do I know this is not an eclipse? First of all, it lasted three days. Second of all, the Egyptians had light. Number three, evidently, the Egyptians did not even have light in their dwellings. So did God allow the lamps not to shine? I don't know, but I know one thing. This was a direct act of God. And it was darkness that could be felt. I can't imagine how bad that darkness must have been. Number two, Joshua chapter 10, 
verses 12 and 13, often referred to as Joshua's long day. And I want you to listen as the description is given in Joshua 10. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the children of Israel delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Aijalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven, and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. This is not an eclipse either, because you have sunshine. What you have here is the moon in one area and the sun in another, and they stop there. If you observe the eclipse, you notice what happened is they came together and they crossed. And when they did, it blocked out the light. There's no indication here that this is an eclipse whatsoever. This is indication that God stopped the sun and the moon, or evidently he stopped the rotation of the earth. Number three, Luke 23, verses 44 and 45. Obviously, you know, if you're a good student of the Bible, this has reference to what occurred from the sixth hour to the ninth hour while Jesus was on the cross. It says, Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the earth until the ninth hour. The sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. The thing that you will notice about this is it lasted for three hours. If you were here in McMinnville, we were in the direct path of the eclipse, and it lasted a minute and 56 seconds, I think was the exact amount of time. Minute and fifty something seconds, not three hours. And so, the, if this were an eclipse, there would be another problem with it. This occurred during the time of the full moon. Earth's in the, or the moon's in the wrong place for there to be an eclipse during a full moon. What does the eclipse re, uh, reveal? God set this universe in order. And eclipses are a natural part of it. I remember the one in 1979. And I remember the one of a week ago. And uh, if I'm around, which I doubt I will be at the next one, it's a part of something that can be predicted. Genesis 8 verse 22 says, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. God put all these natural things in order and that's why they happen as they do. The fact that you knew that it was coming, you knew the time that it was coming, shows plainly that this was a part of a natural event. Now, uh, let me make a few comments before we draw the lesson to an end. One thing that will often help interpreting Scripture is the context. I encourage you as you read passages and you're trying to determine what a passage means, always read the context, read it clearly, and that will often reveal to you the answer. There are things that happen in nature that we often cannot explain. I don't know a lot of things and I don't have the explanation for a lot of things. I do know that 
in the book of Proverbs, chapter 30, verses 18 and 19, Solomon said, There are three things which are too wonderful for me, yes, four which I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the air, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a shipman in the midst of the seas, and the way of a man with a virgin. I know that especially the first two, how can an eagle stay in flight for so long? How can a snake crawl up the side of a smooth rock? I don't know. There's a lot of natural things that occur that if you ask me the question, and some of you have asked me questions, and I've said I can't put that in the question list because I don't know the answer to it. I won't ever know the answer to it. There's some things that have not yet been revealed, and we've got to be content with that. However, what I must do to be saved is clear and easy to understand. The challenge is, is to do it. I know that Jesus teaches that a man have to, has to believe that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, John 8, verse 24. I know that he teaches a man has to be willing to change from his sinful pathway to repent, Luke 13, verse 3 and verse 5. I know that a man has to be willing to confess Jesus before men. Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. And he has to be baptized for the remission of his sins. Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. I can find examples of that in the scripture as well as the objective teaching. Tonight, if you need to do that, we want to encourage you to be obedient to the gospel as together we stand and sing.